From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The Defense Department Inspector General says bureaucracy is preventing the military from getting the cyber recruits it needs. The IG reports DOD components incorrectly coded key positions, making it hard to accurately assess the workforce, Defense News reports. The Army has a new $3.5 billion contract with Pfizer to procure 500 million COVID-19 vaccine doses. The Pentagon plans to distribute these shots to over 100 countries, Army Times reports. The Pentagon expects the purchase to be completed by the end of 2022. The Navy will take on part of the cost to replace faulty parts for some of its littoral combat ships, Defense News reports. The service is negotiating the exact amount it will spend on the Freedom Variant LCSs with the builder of the ship. The Navy now wants to decommission two littoral combat ships rather than pay to fix them. Pentagon now requires all military personnel to attest to their COVID-19 vaccination status in accordance with the White House's new guidance. DOD requires those who have not been vaccinated to wear masks, physically distance, and get tested regularly. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council and former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Logistics and Material Readiness. Thanks for joining me, David. Let's talk about how this is going to affect DOD contractors. What do you expect? Well, the, the guidance, as you called it, is actually not guidance yet, right? What we've had is an announcement, we've had a fact sheet, we've had a white paper, and we've had a series of press conferences. And so from a contractor's perspective, something has to be put in writing and issued by an authority that, that uh, you recognize, and that has yet to happen. Uh, in fact, we've been told by the Pentagon that it may take a week or two for that guidance to be finalized and issued. In the meantime, though, uh, the question of to whom it applies and what it means, those are really key questions. The president's announcement says on-site contractors. There's no technical definition of what's an on-site contractor. Is that a person who's there five days a week? Is it a person who goes to a facility occasionally or regularly, but not every day? Um, and how does it apply to contractors who are uh, being sent to multiple facilities. We had one company says, I've got people going to 15 different army bases in the next two weeks. Are they gonna have to attest 15 different times? And, uh, and so these are questions that still remain to be answered. However, the other thing that's not clear is really what's the purpose or the purposes of, of, these, of this announcement and this new guidance. And I think we can interpolate that the idea is to, number one, protect health and human safety, number two, to reduce the spread of the vaccine by reducing the number of people who have it and therefore the number of opportunities for it to mutate. And then finally, to make it easier to be vaccinated than unvaccinated because the consequences of not being vaccinated are you're gonna have to get tested a couple of times a week. Right, uh, you sort of um, hinted an issue that a company may have where they have um, you know, they have employees who are on site all the time who uh, may appear clearly covered by this, but then they have other employees who are working out of their offices. Are they going to have, you know, maybe separate or differing policies for these employees? And maybe that's something they already do. What do you, what do you expect there? Well, the White House has uh, attempted to make it clear that each agency has to set up its own procedures here and its own guidance mechanisms, et cetera. In addition, the White House has indicated that they would like this to apply to all contractors. Uh, on-site contractors and contractors who work elsewhere. It also says, very interesting wording, independent of geographic location. To me, that implies 
it doesn't even necessarily need to be a federal facility. It's wherever you're working. This is for federal civilians and for uniformed personnel, as well as for, for contract uh, employees. All of this remains to be worked out. I think companies would probably prefer to have one set of guidances with which they comply for all contracts, for all agencies, for all circumstances, because it's difficult to manage multiple different rules for your workforce when some people are uh, have multiple roles within that workforce. Sure. What are you hearing from, from these companies who are, of course, your members? Um, are they concerned about the logistical challenge, or do they feel like this um, maybe gives them some, some cover if they want to require vaccines in their own facilities? Well, each company has been wrestling itself with the question of what are my requirements for my workforce? I think what this has holds promise to do is to create some common ground for all federal contractors across the board. But it only works that way if the government implements it in a way that creates that common ground. If you leave it up to each agency, or in the case of contractors, as you know, Marjorie, oftentimes it's one contract at a time, one task order at a time. That's going to be confusion. That's going to lead to a lot of discrepancies. That's what our companies would like to avoid. And PSC is working on their behalf to do that. You um, obviously are sort of hinting at the, the time frame here. It sounds like you expect this to be um, somewhat extended. I mean, certainly nothing happens overnight, but it sounds like you think this could take weeks or maybe even months to sort of work out some of the details in individual agencies and contracts? It's quite possible it could take some time. First of all, um, attestation requires an actual form that you would fill out. Forms have to be developed and reviewed and approved by form approval processes. Each agency may have its own in this regard. Some agencies may have a head start, uh, others do not. Then there's the question of what do you do with the information? You know, an attestation presumably has to become part of a record, particularly if you're attesting that you did not been, you have not been vaccinated or you declined to answer. So who owns the database? What goes in it? What do you do with the results? The, 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 the guidance so far, or the, at least the commentary so far, doesn't even say what happens if you get a positive result of a test. Uh, you know, and this is, these are the kinds of things I think what our members most want is clarity and, and understanding and common ground across the board here. I think, though, everybody agrees we've got to do more to beat this, this uh, coronavirus. You know, as contracting executives are thinking about this, certainly they've they've had to come up with some policies themselves over the past year plus. What are your recommendations for them as they kind of encounter this new um, approach from the federal government? Well, I think we're giving them a, a checklist and we're developing it with our members. In fact, we've got uh, multiple meetings with them over the next few days on this regard of the things that you ought to be taking into consideration. Uh, the, you know, the attestation approach, for example, doesn't require proof of vaccination. You accept people's word and they affirm that, that, is, that they're telling the truth, right? This gets you around the very, very difficult problem of how do you prove that you've been vaccinated because it's pretty easy to to counterfeit one of those little vaccine cards that so many people have gotten, right? So there are a lot of those kinds of questions that goes into our checklist here. Communicating with your contracting officers and your CORs or your government representatives for your contracts. Planning ahead, you know, we haven't even talked about the travel restrictions that are uh, talked about by the executive branch here. Those travel restrictions are not clear. And in many cases, government agencies are going to err on the side of saying no is a lot easier than saying yes to the wrong person. So those are the kinds of checklist ideas that we give our members to, uh, to go through. But the biggest thing is opening the lines of communication with all of your contracting representatives. Thanks so much for joining me, David.
You're welcome. Coming next, zeroing in on climate change from a new perspective. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the environment has to do with national security at the Pentagon. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Department of Defense is making new investments in reducing operational energy demand. The Defense Secretary's senior climate advisor, Joe Bryan, says understanding climate change is important to national security and the Pentagon as a whole. Sharon Burke is president at Ecospherics. She's former assistant secretary of defense for operational energy plans and programs. Thanks for joining me, Sharon. Let's talk about how DOD is moving to become more energy independent and, and why they're taking these steps. They're taking these steps for two reasons. One is, is one about readiness and operations, and particularly in the future strategic landscape. So the way they use energy and the energy they use is going to make them a better military and make them more prepared for future missions. But then there's also the question of climate change and the way that it's going to shape and affect military missions and capabilities, that it's important for DOD to incorporate that into how they do business now. Certainly, this is not entirely new, right, Sharon? This has been an area of, of attention. Do you see um, some new energy or, or funding behind it with um, the Biden administration's focus? This is definitely nothing new. Uh, energy on the battlefield has been an issue, you know, going back to the problems of getting feed and fodder for horses. It's always uh, an issue, and it's always a strategic shaping issue. So nothing new. But the Biden administration is taking a much more, I mean, the, the president made something like 350 promises on the campaign trail about climate security and about energy security. And he often explicitly talked about the role of the Department of Defense. So they're putting a lot more leadership commitment and more resources against these problems. What about, um, you know, the role of other agencies? Is there, are there opportunities for the Pentagon to, to work with other agencies um, on this issue? Without a doubt. So this is a national security issue writ large, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily a military issue, especially when you're talking about climate change. There's no question DOD needs to understand how climate change is going to shape future missions and affect you know, their bases and their capabilities or platforms. But at the same time, really investing in, in dealing with climate change is largely a civil society and a civilian agency mission. So they can help define the risk, but the, the actual investment may be at uh, AID or at the State Department. Still, DOD has its important role to play for its own capabilities as well. Sure. And, and you know, when DOD is also thinking about other partners, I, I assume industry plays a role here. How can um, the Pentagon help to, to change or drive industry behavior as it relates to this issue? That's a great question, and I think one that they've already started to answer. There was a request for information that came out, I think, about six weeks ago that asked industry how exactly they're cutting greenhouse gas emissions and promoting uh, environmental sustainability and security in their own operations. And I would interpret that as, in some ways, a shot across the bows, that they're going to start incorporating climate change and energy performance into the JSIDS process, into requirements and the acquisition process, and that you know the industry should be ready for that and be ready to show not just how they're how they're cutting emissions in their own operations, but how they're incorporating that into what they build for the Department of Defense. That's a that's a really interesting point. It sounds like you think that um, DoD buying behavior really is an area where that you could see some some changes as a response to this. Is that fair? 
That's certainly what the department's been telegraphing um, with this RFI and, and with what the president, the commander in chief has been saying consistently about supply chain concerns and green procurement. So I, I think you'll see follow through on this and industry should expect that. As, as DOD leaders are starting to think about this, you know, in all different parts of the department, do you have advice or recommendations on how they should be um, thinking about this issue and trying to think about how it might affect their individual missions or goals? I do. I, I think for one thing that they should start incorporating climate risk and climate change into their into how they see their areas of responsibility, their missions, their capabilities, they should understand what the risks are, whether that's destabilization, whether that's partner demand for collaboration on these issues, whether that's a base where they may have uh, access problems or readiness challenges, um, whether that's extreme weather that may affect again, you know, their platforms as we've seen in US bases, such as Tyndall, where we had F-22s that were damaged and taken out of service. That full range, I think, especially understanding how it's going to shape future missions, where there might be destabilization that will result in military missions. And also there are direct missions here in the Arctic and also DISCA, you know, defense support to civil authorities and humanitarian and disaster response that I think sometimes you hear, I have heard defense officials say, that's not really our core mission. Somebody else needs to step it up. But the nation's invested in them, and they're the ones that have the capabilities. And I think they need to get past that and, and accept that HADR and DISCA are their missions and will be, barring significant investments in more civil capacity. I'm sure it's hard to take the temperature of a, an organization as large as DOD, but are you starting to see uh, that mindset change? Any sort of anecdotal evidence there? I think we're starting to see that mindset change for a variety of reasons, including that it can't be lost on anyone that even just at home, that we've had you know record-setting floods, record-setting wildfires, record-setting cyclonic storms, record-setting heat, and that all of this, those things cross over into military missions. That can't be lost on anybody, that it's a, an opportunity cost, but also a real genuine mission um, and is requiring more resources. But then I think COVID has really brought home what this looks like to us. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I got vaccinated, a soldier did my triage, an Air Force medic gave me a shot. And uh, that's one thing. And then also the way that COVID is destabilizing globally is is causing you know all kinds of problems including here at home you know that's not previously would have said that's not a military concern it's not a military challenge but i don't think it's lost on anybody that it could result in military missions and certainly risk to us interests and people thanks sharon appreciate the time my pleasure anytime up next, a data deluge coming for national security. Straight ahead on Government Matters, data localization and why it matters to national security. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. new bill in Congress could require the Commerce Department to conduct data localization assessments. Federal News Network reports the SHIELD Act would focus on studying the impacts of e-commerce, data sharing, and data flow on the economy. Errol Yibokay is Director and Senior Fellow for the Project on Fragility and Mobility at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's writing about data localization and national security for CSIS.
Thanks for joining me, Errol. Let's start by talking about what data localization is and, and these national security concerns that you're outlining. Absolutely, thanks for having me. It's, it's a good question and one that I get a lot because it's a little bit of a wonky term. Um, basically what we mean by data localization is policies or mandates that require certain data related to citizens or residents of a country to be physically stored. So physically stored in infrastructure um, within a country's borders. And so imagine, you know, I'm sitting in DC and imagine I tweet out something. So Twitter is a US based company saying, look, Ma, I'm on TV. And um, that is going to be sort of the genesis of that is in the United States. It's housed in a US based company. But let's say I'm doing that in India. I'm tweeting that in India. That, and if their laws that they're trying to pass right now are successful, that'll mean that, sure, it may be accessible to everyone globally, but the actual data that I am putting into the system that's about me, that's generated while I'm physically in India, can actually stay in India and not actually be kept out of the country. And so that's where some of the concerns come. And it seems that this has been treated more as an economic issue, but that you, you see some real national security concerns. Can you explain that a little bit? Definitely. It's, so the term national security gets thrown around a lot in the data security world. It's usually, this is bad for business and there's some national security concerns. And so that really wasn't ever really well-defined. And so my co-authors and I thought that there was an opportunity to write something and do some analysis about what we think the real national security concerns are. And so when we think about arguments for data localization mandates, so for controlling the cross-border flow of data more, you think about, you know, I, I'm not sure that it's a good idea for, you know, US citizen data to be housed only in China and therefore be accessible to the Chinese Communist Party whenever they want it. I can see that being a pretty valid, not only commercial concern, but also given who the citizens are or who they could be, also a national security concern. There's also legitimate reasons why law enforcement agencies might desire access to data and, and um, sort of want to restrict data flows to bad actors. So, you know, people planning attacks that may be in the United States, trying to communicate with those outside of the United States. There may be a reason why we would want to control some of those. But honestly, the, the arguments are more that we found are more actually in the against column than they are in the for column. And so I'm happy to go into some of those arguments against. Well, let's start by talking about how has the U.S. responded this, to this historically and, and maybe how should they respond to this to, to handle those arguments? So historically, as you mentioned, this has really been in the commercial space. And so we have dealt with this through trade agreements. We have um, responded to mandates that other countries have put on US-based countries through trade and diplomacy and, and things like that. And I think what we're, what we're worried about and what we're seeing is that um, that's not gonna be enough going forward in, in an era of increased cyber attacks and an era of, of sort of increased geopolitical competition where data is money and data is power, uh, we're gonna need a, a little bit more of a robust set of tools against uh, these data localization mandates. Where should that come from in the government, do you think? Um, you know, there's obviously, it seems like it touches a, a number of issues. 
It does. And it's, it's worth talking about what some of our fears are first, perhaps, and then, and then talk about where, what we can do about it. And so we're, we're really worried um, about um, the other countries, um, sort of these mandates are, are introducing greater risk and complexity to cybersecurity. So let's say I'm doing that tweeting in, in India or in Russia, and there's data localization mandates there. Well, those companies are going to have to have more people and more data uh, physical infrastructure in different countries. And that is, you know, people are vulnerable and, and, you know, things like ransomware attacks and other things that we're seeing a lot now are getting in through people in addition to, to directly the systems themselves. And so the more people you have, the more vulnerability you have. That's the first one. And I think I mentioned law enforcement and, and um, sort of collaboration between law enforcement before, but, but data localization can actually limit collaboration between military law enforcement, intel, and other security actors. It's already complicated enough for law enforcement in the United States to, to coordinate and share data with law enforcement in friendly countries. Uh, and if you erect more data localization mandates, that becomes more uh, more challenging. And the last thing that we're concerned about is that data localization is really being used as a tool of digital authoritarianism. And so countries are saying, oh, we want to protect our national security. But when you pull that onion a couple layers back, it's really about controlling the citizenry. And so to your question, um, I think that this is a diplomatic challenge. I think it's, it's certainly a national security challenge that uh, the Department of Defense and the various uh, intelligence-focused agencies within the U.S. government are increasingly going to have to grapple with. Lots, lots to discuss there. Thanks so much, Errol. You can find a link to Errol's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, too. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Spencer. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.